Well, so good to be with you today. I'm Jeff Salzman. Uh, welcome to the Daily Evolvers Fireside Edition. And, uh, you know, it's nice to just hang out for a little while together today. Uh, please mute if you haven't already. I'm hearing a little bit of background noise. And um, yeah, so I thought today, uh, you know, being kind of a lazy summer day here, uh, that I would just share some of the tidbits that I've received from people and uh, some of the things I'm thinking about. And um, and just, you know, use it to chart our ever-evolving culture and consciousness, which is what we do here at The Daily Evolver. So first, to recapitulate a little bit to the last episode, where I talked about the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, Namali and I went to see it. We both really, you know, I mean, I won't put words in. I was repulsed by it physically. I mean, I had a subtle body overload from this movie. Namali, I wouldn't put, won't put words in your mouth, but uh, I think you're, we're basically on the same boat there. And so Namali sent me, Namali's my sort of guide through the cinema oftentimes, and she has these websites and she knows things. And there's a, a critic that she sent me, and uh, she sent me a note saying, I promise you we're not alone. See this review of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Because, because of course, Everything Everywhere All at Once is the most awarded movie in history. I talked about that in the last time. So it's uh, Jordan Rumi, who is uh, in the website The World of Real, and the headline of his critique is everywhere, everything everywhere all at once is being overpraised to high heavens. And so I read what he wrote, and I realized that perhaps I had taken too much of the blame for not liking this movie. I thought it was just because it was evolutionary beyond me. And I think there's some truth to that. I mean, it really had sort of a video game sort of visual aesthetic that I'm just never going to get at my stage of the game here. So... I think all of that's still true, but here's another perspective, and I think illuminates a lot of the, uh, um, it, it gives us some evolutionary I, I, things that we can talk about here. So um, here's what he started with. He says, uh, and actually these are just paragraphs taken out, so I'm just going to read a couple excerpts. First one is, the anxiety-written immigrant family at the center of the film just want to get their taxes done, and the subtle absurdism in the first stretch of the film is wonderfully told. And I just want to emphasize that the first 15 minutes, I was so excited. I thought we were, I was, you know, in for one of the best movies of my life. Uh, that's how good the first few minutes were, 15 maybe even. So then he goes on, and then he says, and I agree, then at some point, multiverses pack into other multiverses, Hot dog fingers show up, not to mention a black hole bagel becoming central to the story, and it inevitably comes, becomes pointlessly complicated. The emotional aspects at the climax also feel too obvious and unearned. Dare I say it, the film is a plasticized depiction of generational trauma. It's like, good God, that's an interesting critique, and I get it. Uh, and then he goes on to say, this is the most millennial movie I have ever seen. It basically says the world is a place that's chaotic, void of meaning. So any kind of social development or progress is just an illusion. Unless, of course, you learn to love. It just might be the most Reddit-approved movie ever made. And it's very nihilism, despite the trite messaging 
renders it almost meaningless. Damn, Namali. I mean, that is, it, it, and I get it. You know, I get what he's talking about. And I do think that there's an interesting evolutionary observation here, especially when he talks about it being millennial and this being sort of the philosophy of millennials. And I would say it's millennials and Gen X and Gen Z and people, you know, basically in the younger, if you will, demographic. It's a feature of green. And, you know, we talk about how green is really, in a way, just fluorescing into the culture. It's been at the cutting edge for a long time, but it's really just taking up its spaces in all of the cultural categories in new ways, and it's happening in real time. And I point to a uh, episode that I did with Keith Witt uh, in the Shrink and the Pundit series, where we talked about teen depression and basically identified it as is fundamentally green depression. And it's what he's talking about here. The world is seen as chaotic, void of meaning, no social development, everything's an illusion. And that is the you know ultimate deconstruction that is Green's job, actually. Green's job is to deconstruct the triumphalist narratives of history. And it does a really good job. But the problem is, is that when there's nothing to believe in, <laughs> you know, God, forget God, uh, my culture, modernity, you know, progress, uh, you know, at least modernity got rid of God and became the age of anxiety. But then post-modernity, at least modernity continued to have the idea of progress. But then post-modernity comes in, gets rid of any idea of progress. And so you're left with not only anxiety, but depression. And this is the feature of green. Now, what Integral would say, and it's you know, the hopeful message, is that there's a movement through this into the second tier, where meaning comes back, there's a re-enchantment of the world, and this movie, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it is nihilistic, because there are nihilistic movies, <laughs> and they don't include love. And, you know, I guess, and he he points to this, that, that everything, everywhere, all at once does have a love message for family and connection at the end. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't testify to that. I was in too much of a, you know, sensory. I was tilted like one of those pinball machines. So it may, I, I didn't see it myself, but let's assume it was there. If it is, totally there. then that is, there you go. Totally there. <laughs> totally there. Good. Yes. That was the point, the point I thought. <laughs> All right. Good. That's good. And that's the good side of green, actually, is, you know, love or sensitivity. Um, the ability, I, I always think of um, uh, when I was at Naropa, the, getting my master's degree in Buddhism and all these sort of really highly evolved, educated Buddhists. I remember my one fellow student saying that, you know, the best we can do is to sit with the suffering of the ever darkening world. And I, th th that at a minimum, that that is sort of good. I guess there's a willingness to stare into the abyss. I think there is something that's evolutionarily cleansing about that. And I'm not saying this movie def, you know, gets into that territory, but the love part to the degree that it has sensitivity to the degree that it has a, a love message, um, then I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's nihilistic, but anyway, uh, he goes on and he says, this is an ice cold film delivered in a relentless ADD infused assault on the senses Ironically, Quan, the director-writer, 
has admitted that he wrote the film as an attempt to recognize and understand his own previously undiagnosed ADHD, but why should we all suffer in the process? Okay, so I get that. And I think there's a certain, you know, I like that he agrees with me in that in a certain way and whatever, but but it's, I, I can't get settled on that because I, I do think that it is a legitimate, it's legitimate for art to explicitly reveal the workings of a non-ordinary mind, if you will. And that part of the evolution of consciousness is that we're including these non-ordinary minds and things that we would see as disorders, uh, you know, that actually have their gifts. And not just in the message of the movie, but in the aesthetics, the way the movie itself is structured and transmitted. And when I think about that, it makes me uh, friendlier to the movie. I, I makes me want to see it again. And it reminds me of one of the most bizarre aesthetic experiences of my life, which happened a couple of years ago when I went to see a play at our local theater company, The Dairy. And they um, they did this play. I, I didn't really know anything about it. You know, we're getting a big thunderstorm here and lots of thunder and lightning. So if you hear that, that's what's going on. Um, so I went to this play. I didn't know anything about it. I have a season ticket. It's a small theater, maybe 100 people, a nice local company. And I wish I could remember the name of the play, but I can't. Uh, but it was the most one of the most frustrating experiences of my life, certainly artistically. And the, the, the play was set up as a suburban backyard. And there was two backyards kind of connected. There was a fence. There were a couple families sharing the the backyard and there's a barbecue grill and a table and all of this stuff and things happened and people would come and go and there were some sexual shenanigans and i think maybe at one point somebody threw something but there was no propulsive force there was no narrative force at all the the dialogue was just completely trite and banal and people would talk and then trail off and then somebody else would say something and no scene was ever really resolved. And I remember literally sitting there in real time asking myself, could this possibly be what the playwright wrote? This is the final draft. This is what my beloved community theater company has spent tremendous energy producing. Really? And so, you know, the, the next day I do, you know, I still frustrated. My frustration turned to anger. You know, I had to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> so I, of course, went to the Internet and I looked it up and I read some interviews and an article in The New York Times. It turns out the, the play was had been produced and it was popular and, and I think it was on Broadway and maybe won some awards. But it turns out that the author was writing about a mental condition. And I wish I could remember the name of the condition, but it's on some spectrum and, you know, that's, you know, again, as culture evolves, we just get more fine tuning of these ways in which, again, these non-ordinary minds, you don't even, there may be even be a gift to it. But the feature of this disorder, if you will, is that people can never really come to a point in conversation. And they just keep circling around the point. And you might know people like this. It's sort of like landed for me that I recognize this. And just as they're circling around the point, they lose it and they can never really land. And it's tremendously frustrating 
and frustrating as well for them. And this play was about that. It was about the transmission of that. Uh, and the way he did it was that every character in the play had this condition. And so I went back to see it then the next night. And I have to say that in terms of actual feeling and being moved and having art do what it can do, which, which is to make you a bigger and better person, you know, make you expand and include more. It was one of the most rewarding nights of theater in my life. It's one of my favorite plays of all time. But I wouldn't have been able to appreciate it if I didn't know what the intention of the author was. And uh, so anyway, if I could think of everything everywhere at all at once in the context of that, uh, it helps me to be moved and helps motivates me to see it again. So anyway, that I just wanted to share some of that. Uh, so then here's another thing I, I wanted to share. And it, it's in the same territory, and it's this good part of green, and that Generation Z and X and millennials, and particularly the younger ones, the Generation Z, there was a statistic this week that got a lot of attention that, I forget the exact number, but I think it was like 40 plus percent of Generation Z thinks it should be a crime to misgender someone. Now, I don't know about the study and I don't know about if, you know, Generation Z would really want to see somebody arrested you know, for this crime of misgendering someone. And a lot of studies like this are performative and people just ways for people to express themselves. So let's just look at it in, in you know, it's sort of that sort of plain reading. It's remarkable that 48% feel that strongly about misgendering someone that it is, um, you know, just uh, once again, the the jaw jaw dropping rate of cultural level in consciousness evolution is just amazing to me. I've talked about the gender wars before, and you know, I think evolutionarily speaking, that you know, we're in a, there's a there's a new emergence. Uh, this integration of masculine and feminine that has been going on for a long time. If you think of our grandparents and great grandparents and how they lived in the sex roles and the sort of straitjacket of gender that they had to live in, that there is a new um, fluorescing of, again, complexity of letting everybody be who they are, expanding to include uh, the full range of the masculine feminine polarity, or at least more of it. And it's like, I, I'm trying to figure out what the right term for that is. Non-binary is a term that people use. And I think it does a lot of good, good work in the sense that it's saying, I'm not either of those, but it feels too much to me like a homogenized middle. And I would want it to include access to the whole range of masculine feminine polarity, maybe bi uh, pansexual, doesn't feel quite right. Bipolar is taken. <laughs> but we want, uh, you know, we, we're, we're looking for that. And I think we're heading towards that way of being where both are available, not required. You can live one way or the other. You can hang out as long as you want, wherever you want. You can move around. 
And I have to say, you know, if we look at the trajectory we've had since our great grandparents and grandparents, our grandchildren and great grandchildren will be in a very different place. And I do think it will be more interesting and it'll be more alive and more juicy when we have full access to our masculine and feminine energies. And this is, again, this good part, this is good green that's coming on. You know, all, all, everybody will be more interesting. And it's happening. The normalization in the culture of transgender and, and certainly gay, oh my God. I mean, uh, gay is everywhere. I can remember, and this is not that long ago, when I was watching TV, probably in the 90s, because I looked it up, it was the Jerry Springer show, if you remember the Jerry Springer show, and he'd have these wacky people on and they'd like throw chairs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he had, to my mind, and I watched TV my whole life, the first gay couple ever. And this was this couple who were arguing. Now, he had arguing couples on all the time, but this was the first time it was two young men. And I remember it was weird. I was kind of cringy and, you know, meanwhile, I'm a gay guy myself. I was their same age probably. And, um, and, and then of course it just gets normalized and normalized and normalized. And you could call, call that internalized homophobia on my part. Uh, but you know, the world turns and now of course, gay is about as, you know, dispositive as eye color for people these days. And transgender is the next thing to happen. Uh, and I think that we will be at some point where we, you know, it'll be like the bar in Star Wars. Everybody just to be gets to be whatever creature they are. And I think that's going to be a more interesting world. Now, from an integral perspective, we can also see and be friendly to and, and, and try to see the intelligence of the counter that is formed to the transgender ideology, to the social contagion to the confusing conflation of categories that's happening and and notice the fanatics. And, you know, we can notice the fanatics on both sides. Uh, I'm a committed both sizest. You haven't caught that already. But we are working our way to a more intelligent, you know, how, how, when can kids be medicalized? Should they ever be medicalized? Uh, studies going on, far more awareness around all of that, a recognition that our reach exceeded our gasp, that grasp, that there's a, an ideology that has, as ideologies always do, fanatics seem to be necessary at every stage of development. I mean, they certainly are there and they do sort of populate the field so that evolution can take everything into account. And so I think, I, I just wanted to say, I think that's happening. You know, one of the ways that that's happening, that, that we're fighting our way forward, friending our way forward, but in, in this case, you know, figuring out how to let this happen so that people, minimum of suffering, uh, you know, maximum of freedom, uh, don't get ahead of the game with the kids. And I think that we can see that on uh, the, 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 the sort of tool of this or the arena that we're fighting this out in is social media. It's a media in general, but social media especially. And so I wanted to share something I saw on Twitter, a thread I saw on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. And it just, I, it just was there when I opened Twitter and I thought, oh my God, this is really uh, doing the job in terms of you know the fight. So there it is. So we start out with a post by Dr. Dr. Helen Weberly, who I don't know who that is, but uh, she states, stating your pronouns isn't for you. 
It's for the trans woman who hasn't come out yet. It's for the trans man who feels he doesn't pass. It's for the non-binary person who is terrified of being their true self. Because when everyone states their pronouns, it normalizes it. And it doesn't single out the people who really need them. So tell people your pronouns so that the people it's really for feel comfortable doing it too. Simple, right. So yeah, so I get that. You know, I listen to anything. It sounds reasonable when I listen to it. And then, so, so the, the first comment back is, <laughs> no, in all caps, we will not, in all caps, comply with your neo-Maoist agenda. So feedback, right? The breakfast of champions. So then next is from this Susie. She says, stating whether you've been saved by Jesus isn't for you. It's for the people who haven't been saved yet. It's for the person who feels he's not worthy. It's for the person who is terrified of Christian responsibility. Tell people if you've been saved, so the people it's really for feel comfortable getting saved too. So, you know, uh, ridiculous to absurdum, you know, kind of argument back. And then back from Matthew, Jesus would have loved his neighbor enough to have used their preferred pronouns. And then the last one's my favorite. This is a parody, right? <laughs> so there you have, in one Twitter thread that probably went on for another five feet, you know, um, this is the game. This is this is how we're evolving. You know, this is how everybody gets in the game and gets in the arena and, uh, you know, they make their, they throw their punches and they get thrown punches back. And again, not pretty, but it is actually beautiful. And we're getting smarter and wiser all the time as a result of it.